Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue the season of Advent as we await the birth of the Christ child. Just how far would you go to take care of your family? Just how far would you go to secure yourself? Join us for the message, Harlots and the Holy Family, Ruth. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Now how far would you go to take care of your family? And just how far would you go to secure security for yourself? Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit later in our message, Harlots and the Holy Family, Ruth. We have several scripture readings today, but we'll begin in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Listen now to the word of God. An account of this genealogy of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Got to find verse 5. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. I know it's not even Christmas yet, but have y'all given any thoughts about what your New Year's resolutions may be? (laughs) Yeah, I know that's been top of your mind. Well, last year I made a resolution to read through the entire New Testament in 2023. It had been some time since I had done something like that. Because most of the time when I'm reading the Bible, it's to prepare for a sermon or a Bible study, which means I'm reading a small section of text and then really studying it in depth. But you know, sometimes it's a good idea to kind of stand back and read large swaths of the text so you can once again see that big picture. So I decided to read through the entire New Testament. I changed the orders of the books, uh, the order in which I read the books, but but once I had my list, I just started at the top of the list and, and read through. And it ends up that the exact number of chapters in the New Testament is 260 chapters. And in 2023, the number of weekdays just also happened to be 260. So the plan was for me to read a chapter each weekday and then having the weekends to devote to church. Now, in practice, I would often go several days without reading, but then I'd read multiple chapters at one sitting. And so as a result, I'm actually already finished with my New Testament reading for this year. And this coming year in 2024, I plan to really focus on the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now for someone else who might make a resolution to read the entire New Testament, they would probably start in this first chapter of Matthew, which means the first thing they would read is this genealogy with this long list of names. And hopefully they wouldn't get discouraged. Because if you can slog through that list, before the chapter's over, you're already in the Christmas story, which hopefully then would would, would keep their interest. Years ago, when my nephew was in high school, he tried to read the entire Bible. And he started with Genesis, and he got to Exodus. Everything was going fine. But then he got bogged down. If you're familiar, uh, the last part of Exodus contains the mind-numbing instructions on how to build a tabernacle. 
And if that's not bad enough, then you get to Leviticus, which is even more mind-numbing. It's all about exactly how to offer animal sacrifices in graphic, blood-soaked detail. I gave him permission to skip Leviticus. Uh, I said, you can always come back to it later if you want to say that you've read the entire Bible. So at least if you just start with the New Testament, all you've got is 18 verses of genealogy that you have to get through. But as we've seen over these last few weeks, there's more than meets the eye in this opening genealogy. There's a lot more information there than we might uh, uh, initially suspect. The genealogy reminds us that Jesus comes from a human family. While we may only see a list of names, never forget that each of these names there represents a real person, a real story, a real story containing episodes of joy and pain and grief and trauma and love and loss. It reminds us that the Word truly became flesh and bone and blood and sinew. One of the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith is the incarnation. That is the affirmation that in Jesus Christ, God became a human being and lived among us. And this human being was born in a specific time and place to a specific human family. And if God bothered to become a human being housed in a human body, then that must mean that human beings and human bodies are of immeasurable worth and value. And that human life in all of its shame and glory matters. But in many, if not most, ancient societies, women were often valued just for their bodies, as objects of the male gaze or as recipients of male seed who could then give birth to children. So by including four women in his genealogy, however, Matthew turns that idea on its head. Almost every woman mentioned in the Bible, and certainly the four that are here in Matthew's genealogy, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, almost every woman is included in Scripture because she found a way through extraordinary, extraordinary intelligence and skill and sometimes cunning to work through the patriarchal system in order to fulfill the will of God. And so as we have now seen with both Tamar and Rahab, let's take a look at the story of Ruth. The rest of our scripture comes from Ruth. We start with Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Shilion. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with two sons. These two Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. When they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Shilon also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from this country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So he set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. 
But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. They said to her, No, we will not return with you to you. We will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Who, why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It has been far more better for me than than for, bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So what would it take for you to leave your home? What would have to happen for you to decide that leaving everything behind, your hometown, your culture, your country, was your best option? What would you risk in order to make a better life for your family? Would you walk thousands of miles to then cross a border where you might get arrested or worse, separated from your children? Can you imagine trying to outrun a natural disaster, a Texas tornado, or a tsunami, or a wildfire? Well, Elimelech of Bethlehem was trying to save his family from a famine. Ruth is often perceived as some sort of a biblical wonder woman, and we might ask just what is the significance of her story and why would it have been included in Scripture. So we'll explore that. In the very first verse of the book of Ruth, we told that there was a famine in the land that caused Elimelech of Bethlehem to uproot his family and to go to Moab. Elimelech was so concerned that he brought his family to a country that was ordinarily despised by Israelites. Moab was located southeast of Israel on the other side of the Jordan River, and for centuries, Israel and Moab had shared a history of enmity and strife. Yet, it seems that Elimelech and his family were welcomed by the Moabites. Presumably, they lived there several years before, unfortunately, Elimelech died. Their two sons married Moabite women, but then they themselves tragically died. Elimelech's wife, Naomi, was left grief-stricken, bereft of her husband and both of her children. The only family she had left were her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. In the meantime, the famine had ended in Israel, so Naomi decided to return to Bethlehem. Without husbands or sons, Naomi was extremely vulnerable. In a patriarchal society, a woman without a male relative had very few rights, little security, and perhaps maybe going back to her hometown might offer her some degree of safety. As an act of love, Naomi insisted that her two daughters-in-law return to their mother's houses. 
Now, at the time, the only way for a young widow to be financially and socially secure was for her to remarry, because there, there weren't any jobs back then for women who were single or self-supporting. If you're a woman, you lived with a relative, or you begged on the streets, or you sold your body for money. After much cajoling, Orpah tearfully turned to go back to her family, but Ruth clung to her mother-in-law and refused to go back. Now, we're never told why Ruth decided to stay with Naomi and then to go to a country where she would be considered nothing more than a foreign widow without any male relative for protection. I think Ruth obviously loved Naomi, but it could be that, that Ruth had come from an abusive background and had no desire to go back to her childhood home. Maybe she knew that if she were to go back, she was going to be married to you-know-who, or maybe she was just up for a great adventure. Regardless, Ruth begged Naomi with these words that have become classic words of Scripture. Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. So Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley's harvest. Now Naomi had a husband, had a kinsman on her husband's side, a prominent rich man of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose sight I may find favor. She said to her, Go, my daughter. So she went. She came and gleaned in the field behind the reapers. As it happened, she came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz came from Bethlehem. He said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. They answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servants, who was in charge of the reapers, To whom does this young woman belong? The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the Moabite who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the reapers. So she came, and she has been on her feet from early this morning until now, without resting even for a moment. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Well, finally, Naomi relented and let Ruth go back to uh, Bethlehem with her. And the women of the town of Bethlehem were astonished to see Naomi's return. And there she told the townswomen her sad story about how harshly she said that the Lord had dealt with her. Now, presumably, Naomi and Ruth were able to go back to Naomi's previous house, but the two women had little else. They were two poor widows, one elderly and one foreign, and they had no wealth, no power. While the position of the widow and orphan was quite precarious in ancient society, Jewish law did provide a way for the poor to obtain food. During harvest time, landowners were required by law to leave the edges and the corners of their fields unharvested and left for the poor there to glean. And in addition, as the workers were harvesting the grain from the field, they were forbidden 
to pick up any grain that fell to the ground. That was, that was left for the poor to glean. It was providential then that Naomi and Ruth were arriving right at harvest time for both barley and then wheat. Early in the morning, Ruth went out to glean grain from the fields, and it just so happened that Ruth stumbled upon the field of Boaz, a wealthy landowner and a leader of the community. When Boaz saw Ruth, he inquired to whom she belonged. Notice that in an ancient world, it's assuming that a woman belonged to someone else, presumably male. When told she was the Moabite daughter-in-law of Naomi, he invited Ruth to stay in his field and even to eat lunch with his workers. He had heard of her devotion to Naomi and was impressed by her loyalty. He then instructed the young men in the field to not harass Ruth. So I guess the other young women just had to fend off the harassment on their own. But moreover, Boaz told his workers to deliberately, deliberately pull out handfuls of grain and then leave them on the ground for Ruth to glean. And so by the end of the day, she had collected an ephah of barley, and that's the equivalent of about 40 pounds. So Ruth brought this 40 pounds of barley back to Naomi, who was astonished at how much Ruth was able to glean in just one day. In whose field did she glean? When Ruth said the field of Boaz, Naomi gasps. Boaz was a near relative of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech, and as a near relative, Boaz held a unique position. He could claim the right to redeem. If he claimed this right, he had the responsibility to buy back the land and property of Elimelech, therefore ensuring that the property stayed in the family and that Naomi would be able to have at least some degree of financial security. The right to redeem also included leveret marriage. That is the obligation to marry the widow and raise up a son in the name of the deceased. And that son would then inherit the property of Elimelech. Now we came across leveret marriage when we were exploring the story of Tamar two weeks ago. Leveret marriage was a complicated system, but it was intended to preserve land ownership within families and to provide for an otherwise destitute widow. So Naomi then encouraged Ruth to stick to these fields belonging to Boaz. There she was able to glean for the next several weeks through both the barley and then the wheat harvests. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you, so it may be well with you. Now here is our kinsman Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, All that you tell me, I will do. Well, at this point, Naomi concocts a plan. At the end of the harvest, the harvested grain, still in its hull, would then be ground up and taken to an elevated open space or a threshing floor. And there the grain, the ground up grain, would be thrown up in the air, and the lighter weight chaff would uh, be blown away by the wind, leaving just the head of the grain then to fall back down to the earth there on the threshing floor. So on the final night of the harvest, 
the men would all be there at the threshing floor, and there was a joyous occasion. It was treated as a, as a celebration for a successful harvest. And since this was a party, the men would be drinking. They'd be drinking quite a bit. They usually drank until they couldn't keep their eyes open, and then they just picked a place there beside the threshing floor to go to sleep. Well, Naomi told Ruth to anoint herself with some intoxicating perfume and put on her best clothes, go down to the threshing floor party and observe where Boaz lays down to sleep. Then, after dark, when all the other men are asleep, go to Boaz and cover, uncover his feet, lie down, and do whatever he says to do. Now, as you may realize, this is very provocative and risky behavior. Going somewhere in the middle the dark of night, where men have been drinking and then lying down next to one of them and doing whatever he says. Moreover, in Hebrew, the word feet was a euphemism for genitalia. So when Naomi tells Ruth to uncover Boaz's feet, she's essentially saying that Ruth is to go and seduce Boaz. Not usual advice that a mother-in-law gives her daughter-in-law. But Ruth did almost exactly what Naomi recommended. In the middle of the night, Boaz woke up and was startled to find a woman at his feet. Who, who are you, he asks. But then, instead of Ruth doing whatever Boaz said, as she was instructed to do by, by Naomi... Ruth told Boaz exactly what he was going to do. She said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. Asking Boaz to spread his cloak over her was a proposal of marriage. She proposed to him. And now, what's Boaz going to say? He replies, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instance of your loyalty is better than the first. You've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. For all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. So as, as a young widow, Ruth could have found security for herself by marrying anyone. But by marrying Boaz, the next of kin, with that right to redeem then Ruth was also guaranteeing security for Naomi as well. Then all the people who were at the gate, along with the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you produce children in Ephrath and bestow a name in Bethlehem. And through the children that the Lord will give you by this young woman, may your house be like the house of Perez, where Tamar bore Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a store of life and a nurture of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, in the morning, Boaz goes to the city gates and gathers the town's elders all together. There is one man in town that is a closer degree of relative to Elimelech than Boaz and therefore has first rights to Elimelech's property and thus in line, the first in line to fulfill the obligation of leveret marriage. To acquire, though, Elimelech's property, this closer relative would have to marry Ruth. And while he does want Elimelech's property, this closer relative, he's not given a name, but this closer relative does not want the responsibility of marrying Ruth. So he relinquishes his rights in front of all the town elders, and so now Boaz is free to redeem the property, marry Ruth, and ensure financial security for both Naomi and Ruth. And the townspeople bless Boaz and Ruth, hope they raise up a great house. And did you notice? A great house just like Tamar, who tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into impregnating her, which we talked about two weeks ago. So Boaz and Ruth were married, and the Lord caused Ruth to conceive, and she gave birth to a son whom they named uh, Obed. Naomi was overjoyed and was always carrying around little Obed in her own bosom. And it got to the point where the other women in town were joking, like, look, a son's been born to Naomi. <laughs> now, I think the most important overarching theme of the book of Ruth is this, con- uh, this concept of hesed. Hesed is the Hebrew word that's usually translated as steadfast love or loving kindness or loyalty. The three main characters we have here, Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, are distinguished by their continued acts of loving kindness and loyalty. And their actions are consistently in the best interests of others. Now, this is not to say that they don't have any other motivations or they don't do anything in their own self-interest. Because as you know, we human beings are very complex creatures. And most of the time, our actions will have multiple motivations. But in the end, it is our choices that define us. And no choice defines us more than the choice to be kind and compassionate and loyal. Be loyal to others in a way that goes beyond expectation and beyond just self-interest. The book of Ruth, however, also raises questions about what constitutes an ideal society. Now, in some ways, Bethlehem ends up living up to what the ancients would have considered ideal. The marginalized are welcomed and included. Widows are cared for, children are valued. Yet with modern eyes, we question why a society would be organized in such a way that women in general, and widows in particular, would have so little power to order their own lives. That is, apart from a male relative. This position in ancient society was fundamentally precarious and just lacking in security. This should remind us to always be working for a more just society where people enjoy equal opportunity and are equally valued as children of God. This is what it means to be the body of Christ in the world, working to establish this kingdom of God on earth where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. In the meantime, we live in a very imperfect and a fallen world where some of us have more wealth, power, privilege, and resources than do others. If we find ourselves in such a position, then we must realize and acknowledge that our wealth or power or privilege or resources 
are not our possessions. They belong to God and are temporarily given over to us in order that we might glorify God through our good stewardship and generosity. If we have wealth, power, privilege, or resources, we use those gifts to make sure those with less are taken care of and they are enabled and empowered to be responsible for their own lives and whatever gifts God has bestowed upon them. And as you've heard me say before, and I'm sure you'll hear me say it again, if you are a middle-class American, you are wealthy and powerful by world standards. The book of Ruth ends with a genealogy. A child born to Ruth and Boaz is named Obed, and then as the text said, Obed became the father of Jesse, the father of David. You know, the great king. We often just skip over these verses. If we pay attention to them at all, then we simply find it interesting that, hey, all along we've been, tell, been t- being told the story of King David's Moabite great-grandmother. Isn't that interesting? And David was considered the greatest king in the history of Israel. And so it wouldn't necessarily be surprising that David's ancestors would be people of integrity. But as we have seen in the last few weeks, genealogies can be very important. And there's a lot more information to be found there if we remain aware. First of all, we, were, we found out that Boaz was the son of Rahab the prostitute, whose story we studied last Sunday. And we studied, how, or, or excuse me, we saw how the people of Bethlehem blessed Ruth and Boaz by the name of Tamar, whose story we studied the week before that. In addition, the brief genealogy found at the end of the book of Ruth is also actually a surprise ending. Now, our modern ears don't appreciate how shocking this ending would have been to ancient ears. But remember, there is a history of strife and enmity between Israel and Moab, so much so that there is a law in the book of Deuteronomy that says this. No Moabite shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of their descendants shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. You shall never promote their welfare or their prosperity as long as you live. That was a law. The book of Ruth was written at a time in Israel's history when some leaders were encouraging Israelite men to divorce their foreign wives and abandon their own children who were born to these wives. They were to abandon their wives and children in the name of racial, religious, and national purity. But the book of Ruth reminds us that if we cling to these kinds of ideas of purity, if we follow the letter of the law, then we would have to exclude David, the greatest king in the history of Israel, from the assembly of the Lord. So today, when we cling to ideas of purity or law, we need to ask ourselves, who is being excluded? Who is Ruth for us today. For that matter, who is David to us today? What do we lose when we fail to welcome the stranger and invite them to become our neighbor? And then whose body are we abandoning then to a life of meaningless or unremitting labor? Will we be able to turn to both, will we someday be able to turn to both stranger and neighbor 
and say, do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do this and so to me and more as well if even death parts me from you. Amen. Receive this benediction. In this season of Advent, go forth as a person of hope. May your waiting be active. May you discover the presence of God who is making all things new. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we continue to celebrate the season of Advent by exploring Jesus' female ancestors in our sermon series, Harlots in the Holy Family. You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, our YouTube channel, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead, and we'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.